Take it in space. Take I'm it expanding. Space. So literally what is happening right now is the collective power pose prior to the release of the Breakline Arena. And, and this is just so fitting, Sophia, because I don't know if our listeners know this about us, but prior to every single episode, every single one, y'all, what, what do we do? We expand and we throw our arms up and we just take up space. We are power posing and we go, Amy Cuddy, we love you. This, We're power posing. This is why you have to be excited to join us for this conversation, folks. Like this, I'm telling you, this thing is going to knock your socks off. I cannot wait for us to dive in. We are about to start the next episode of Breakline Arena. Let's get empowered. How are we doing out there, folks? It is your host with the most, Kenny Vaughn, the director of Breakline Apex, bringing you another episode with my two lovely co-hosts. What's up, everybody? I am Sophia. I am a talent recruiter here at Breakline, and we are here with the Breakline Boss Lady. Breakline Boss Lady. Hey, folks. It's Bethany Coates, team Breakline all the way. I'm so excited to be here with Kenny and Soap today. So, Bethany, please unpack this next guest for us. We know you have a very special relationship with Amy. Can you give us a little bit more insight into the person that is Amy Cuddy? Yes. And we talk about this a little bit in the podcast, but I have relocated to Park City with my family and I wound up as next door neighbors with Amy Cuddy. Pure coincidence. And I clearly am the major beneficiary of this new friendship. But in watching her, what I realized, one thing that's so incredible about this person is that when she has an interest, she goes all in. She Mm. developed an interest in social psychology and became a professor at Harvard. She also developed an interest in ballet and became a professional ballerina. Of course. She developed an interest in the Grateful Dead and went to over a hundred Grateful Dead concerts and shows no signs of slowing down. (laughs) Amy Cuddy, for those of you who are not aware, is also a world-class roller skater. Mm. So what... What brought this home for me, I've shared on this podcast several times now that I broke my leg (laughs) a couple of weeks ago. And Amy and I and our families had had already developed this really wonderful friendship, but she just put it into overdrive. You know, I'm a mom, I'm an entrepreneur, wife, I've got four kids, I break my leg, life starts coming apart at the seams. Amy shows up for dinners. She takes my daughter, Helena, out skiing because I clearly can't do it. When she goes to these Grateful Dead concerts, she has this um, very artistic side and she creates these incredibly elaborate flower crowns. So she did a whole crafting workshop with my daughter. <laughs> Brings her dog, Mayor, as special pet therapy for me. She's an amazing friend. And that might be the kind of biggest compliment that I could give this leader and expert in her field. It's just been such a joy to get to know her and to share that side of our relationship as part of this podcast. For the people out there who on the slight chance might not know who Amy Cuddy is, can you just put into context the scale and scope of her work and what she's been able to accomplish in her career? Absolutely. So Amy is a celebrated social psychologist. She gave one of the first TED Talks to go viral. It's called Your Body Language May Shape Who You Are. 
It's been viewed over 60 million times. She also wrote the New York Times bestseller, Presence, which talks about how we can use our bodies and our physicalities to affect our self-confidence and to bring us greater health and joy in many areas of our life. She's a young global leader for the World Economic Forum. I mean, she's just a, um, she's a titan in her field. And for that reason, it's just such an honor to have her wisdom shared with the Breakline community and now with our podcast community as well. That is so special. And I love that we led first with your personal relationship with her because she sounds just like a killer friend, girl next door vibes. And then you all of a sudden learn this woman's running the world. And we can't wait to share this conversation with you guys. So without further ado, you know what we should do is I think we should meet our friends in the arena. Diving on in, folks. Yes! Love it! Ah, I love seeing everybody welcome. This is so much fun. And I want you all to know that I have two lenses on this conversation tonight. I have been fangirling Amy's work for at least 10 years since the time that I was at Stanford. As you all know, she's a social psychologist. She's held so many different hats, professor at Harvard, Kellogg, Rutgers. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Present. She's a young global leader for the World Economic Forum. I mean, just an outstanding expert and leader in her field. I have a second lens though, which is less well-known and that's one as just looking at her as a dear, dear friend. And I was talking with Amy actually just a couple days ago about sort of the distinctive nature of friendships forged during the era of COVID. And this has been such an intense and such a disruptive and, and scary year. And I just feel this incredible connection with Amy and our other dear friend, Tatiana, who's also listening in today. And I feel so lucky to have been able to establish this connection with her, which was completely coincidental. We wound up as next door neighbors in Park City. Many of you all know that I broke my leg a couple of years ago. And and I want to give you some specific examples of how Amy has showed up for me in that time. And, and you all know, I, I'm a mom, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a wife. I try to keep it tight. Like I want to keep it together. I broke my leg and I got four girls. So like stuff got wild really fast. Amy comes in, comes over for dinners, crafts with my girls, took my daughter, Helena skiing. She brings her dog, Mayor, who might make a cameo at some point for pet therapy She's just an amazing friend. And so Amy, for both of those lenses, it's just such a pleasure to have you here with my community, the Breakline community, who I also love so much. This is such a special moment. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. I wish we were sitting together, but, uh, but I'm glad to be only a couple miles away. So what we'll do here, folks, is Amy and I have agreed on a couple of questions. And then as usual, we're also going to turn it over to you. But Amy, I want to actually delve into to your work. And um, you're so well known for your book, Presence. And I want to kind of get right to the heart of that work. And in that book, you describe presence as the state of being attuned to and able to comfortably express our true thoughts, feelings, values, and potential. In short, we demonstrate presence when we're able to be ourselves. And so 
why is it so crucial to be able to access this state of authenticity? First, let me just flag the word authenticity, which I know is in the title of my book. I mean, I use it all the time, but I do feel like it's become a bit hackneyed. And, you know, people use it in so many different contexts now. It's kind of a buzzword to like to convince people that you're sincere. You know, it, it, so let me just unpack for authenticity, but I'm not talking about the unfiltered self, right? I'm really talking about who you are in the best moments of your life, right? So if you think back over the last few years, it does not have to be a work moment. I'm talking about the happiest, most fulfilling moments of your life. You know, when, what, how did you feel? What was happening? Were you, you probably felt seen, you felt connected, you felt loved, you felt respected, and you, and those feelings were mutual with other people. And probably, honestly, for most people, it's not at work. And they have this sense that because that's their out of work self, their, their, you know, their non-work self, that's not the person that they bring to work with them. And I, I think that's completely wrong. And it really, for me, wasn't until I started to reconnect with the things that made me, me, like, you know, following the Grateful Dead and roller skating. And, and these things might seem silly, but actually they brought me back to myself. And if you can bring the self that you are in the happiest moments of your life into your most challenging situations, then, you know, what's better than that, right? That's your most likable, respectable self. And so that's sort of what I'm talking about. I mean, why would you not want to feel that way in your most challenging work situations? In a job interview, you want to feel like that person that you are when you're at, you know, your friend's wedding and you're seeing all your old friends and hanging out and it's great. So that's one reason why, why would you not want to feel that way? And, you know, this sort of false separation between work and non-work, but also when we are authentic, we are able to be more present. And when we're more present, we're able to be authentic. And this is bi-directional. When people are authentic, when they're present, they convey that in things like job interviews and venture capital pitch competitions in, in three ways. The first is that they really clearly buy what they're selling. So if you're feeling authentic, that means you believe in yourself. Authenticity, right, is about being real. So you're feeling honest. And, and so if you buy what you're selling, it's so much easier to sell it. Nobody buys what you're selling if you don't buy what you're selling, period, that's it. And when students say to me, well, how do I sell this thing that I don't believe in? I say, you don't, that's, that's the answer to that. Sometimes you might be selling something that you're not that interested in, but that doesn't mean you think there's something wrong with that. And that's about figuring out why you don't buy what you're selling is important because there are reasons that should make you not wanna sell it. And there are reasons that should make you go, I need to dig a little deeper to understand this thing. The second, so, so one is people believe their story, they buy what they're selling. The second is that people who are being authentic and present convey confidence without arrogance. And I think that's really an important distinction as well, because people conflate those constructs all the time, especially in Western cultures. Arrogance, I see as equivalent to fragile high self-esteem. So it's like you could poke a pin in it and the balloon would pop. It's not real. It's more like overconfidence, but even a little bit different because 
I see arrogance as something that people use as a weapon or as something to block other people from challenging them. It's not sincere. Arrogance is not coming from a sincere place. People who are truly confident don't need to be arrogant, right? The best people in your life are not arrogant. They're the people who are confident and calm in a way that you find welcoming, not threatening. You know, so when people are present and authentic, they're able to be confident and not arrogant. And a place to look at this is the show Shark Tank, which is a kind of guilty pleasure in my household as somebody who studies body language. I love watching these pitches. And what you'll see is that the people who do well tend to clearly believe their story. It doesn't feel too slick. They love what they're doing. And they also convey confidence without arrogance. The last one is, and this gets a little more psychological sciency, is that when people are authentic and present, they communicate in a way that's synchronous. And what I mean is that the, the emotions that they communicate with their words match the emotions that they communicate with their body language. So we have many channels of communication, even verbal. It's not just verbal. I mean, there's more to it than that. There, there are other vocal cues. And so when people are lying, they're telling a false story that goes with a certain set of emotions. They are suppressing a true story that goes with another set of emotions. And they're also feeling a little guilty, probably. And so what happens is they tend to get the words right, but they don't get the body language right. So the, the emotions that they're conveying with the, the words might seem like the right emotions, but they're leaking the lie through the asynchrony between their words and their body language. And just think about like when you were a kid and you may have once in your life lied to your parents and said, I feel really sick and I don't want to go to school. You're trying to say, oh, I feel, I feel so sad and bad. So you're con conveying that emotion, which is false. And, and then you're suppressing the, this is awesome. I get to sit on the couch and watch TV all day, which goes with another set of emotions. People are not good at, at doing that. And so it leaks out. So again, buying what you're selling, confidence without arrogance, and a, a synchronous body language or synchronous communication, those are the qualities that people display when they're authentic and present. And to your question about why does it matter, it also matters in very concrete ways. People who show those qualities, studies have shown, do much better in things like job interviews, college interviews, and venture capital pitch competitions. They are much more likely to be hired, admitted, invested in, and those signals are valuable in the long run as well. Those people not only are more likely to win in that moment, but they actually stay at it longer. They inspire their colleagues more. They are more devoted to the project. They are actually better colleagues. So that's why it's so important to bring your true self, your authentic, sincere self, the self that you love to these situations. Thank you so much, Amy. And I, I wanna double down on actually what we're expressing about ourselves with our bodies and our body language. I love this quote that you included in your book from Maya Angelou. You said, it, her quote is, stand up straight and realize who you are, that you tower over your circumstances. You said our bodies belong to us. They tell us how and what to feel. Could you share more about that concept? Yeah. 
I mean, I, I, I love that quote too. And certainly she's someone who overcame countless enormous challenges, right? Part of what makes humans human is this sort of cerebral quality and, and differentiates us from other animals. And I think to some extent, because of that, we are so focused on what's happening in here that we disconnect from our bodies. And the truth is that first of all, your brain is your body, right? There, there's, again, it's another false distinction or false dichotomy, but your body and your mind are communicating in both directions all the time. See, your mind can tell your body what to do. Your mind can say, um, get up and walk across the floor, but your body is also doing things that communicate information back to your nervous system, telling you if you're safe or unsafe if you're happy or unhappy, if you're shocked or relaxed. And we forget that it's working in that direction and that that's where we can really intervene. So what I care about the most in, in the work that I study, and this, by the way, comes from years of studying stereotyping prejudice and discrimination, which is actually my main area. And I continue to study those things. But there is this frustration when you look at, you know, how systemic prejudices are like if I'm talking to a group of women MBA students and I'm giving them a talk on sexism and I'm telling them what the data look like, it feels pretty bad to, to say at the end, so, you know, good luck at that job interview next week, even if you might face bias. And so I wanted to simultaneously, and again, I still study stereotyping, prejudice, discrimination, but simultaneously study evidence-based kind of psychological tools that people can use to perform well, even in the face of bias, in the most challenging situations. And so I was watching my students at HBS and you know, participation is half the grade in a lot of business schools. And there was this big gender grade gap that by the way, has almost completely closed now. That was you know in 2007. And I noticed that the body language of the people who were speaking a lot in class was much more open and expansive than the body language of people who were afraid to raise their hand or who raised their hand in this apologetic way, you know, where they kind of cup their elbow like this. And so I started to think, I wonder if you could reverse engineer this because we know that expansive body language across the animal kingdom is linked to power. When individuals have power, they expand in every way. Like primates can cause their hair to stand on end to make themselves look bigger. Chimps will hold sticks out to make their arms look longer. Cobras, I mean, think about the sort of hood of the cobra. Birds will expand their wings. All of these are signals of power. And powerless animals do the opposite. They make themselves tiny. So I started to wonder, what if I, told these students who weren't speaking, who by the way, I knew were incredibly bright because they were coming and talking to me one-on-one -on -one in office hours. What if I got them to emulate the body language of powerful people? And that's where that work began. And it, it turned out, right, like it started with this concept that I called power posing. And I kind of regret that I called it that because it, it's almost so sticky and cute that people miss the bigger point, which is that expansive body language makes us feel more powerful in so many ways. And can I just take a minute to give a few examples that are really practical? Let's just talk about breathing. What happens when you're nervous? You start breathing shallowly and quickly. So you are 
you are contracted. You're taking up less temporal space. You're not breathing as deeply into your body. You're not expanding your, your chest as much. When people breathe slowly, it calms them down and triggers what we call the relaxation response, which makes them not only calm, but also much more confident. And so I'm gonna give you one quick example of how to do this. And this to me is probably my favorite body mind hack. It works for me so well. So it's called four, seven, eight breathing. And what you do is you inhale for four counts, you hold your breath for seven, and then you exhale for eight. And I'll count, I'll count. But again, four counts of inhaling, seven counts of holding your breath, eight counts of exhaling. Okay, ready? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It doesn't have to be seconds. It's just counts that have to be equal intervals. You're doing it quietly to yourself. That has now already sent a signal to your nervous system that you are safe. They call it the rest and digest response, which is in contrast to the fight or flight response. Doing that in three rounds is incredibly calming. Some people who are already, you know, sort of on the, the low anxiety side said they can't do it before they drive because they're afraid they'll fall asleep. But if you're feeling that anxiety before you go into a stressful situation, try that. Right? So breathing more expansively makes us feel more powerful. Speaking more slowly makes us feel more powerful. And you probably know this research because it was done by Deb Grunfeld at Sanford GSB. And, and she first noticed that in her experiments, people perceived slow talkers to be more powerful than fast talkers. So then she reverse engineered that in an experiment and had people speak slowly or quickly reading the same sentences and found that the people who spoke slowly, taking up temporal space, right, expanding temporally, they felt much more confident and powerful afterwards. So that's another way that you can do it. Simply sitting up straight as opposed to hunching over your phone, makes people happier, more confident, more assertive. Expansive postures that you do in things like yoga, enormous benefits. Even walking in a more expansive way makes people happier and more confident. Back to sort of the regret about calling it power posing, partly because that was so sticky and people think of Wonder Woman. You know, it, it limited people from seeing all the research that was being done on this all over the world in so many different fields outside of social psychology. You know, there's a, an abundance of, of evidence now that expansiveness makes us feel more powerful and shrinking makes us feel more powerless. One of the, I, I was thinking as you were explaining this phenomenon, is one of the benefits of being powerful, like just being sort of a powerful class that you're, you almost beget confidence, like confidence begets confidence. Yes. And, but you can also build that in yourself. Absolutely. So I want to distinguish between what I call social power, which is, you know, formal power, hierarchical power to your rank in your organization. It's the amount of money that you have. It's status in the traditional sense. That's power over others. 
That's control of resources. That's not what I'm talking about, although that can have some of the same effects. What I talk about is what I call personal power. And personal power is not power over others, it's power too. In a way, it's like your control of yourself and your ability to bring your best self into these challenging moments. It's your sense of agency, your sense of self-efficacy. And what we know is that when people feel powerful, it activates what we call the behavioral approach system. And and that changes the way you feel, the way you think, the way you um, behave, even your physiology. But approach is the word to pay attention to. What happens is that when the approach system is activated, when people feel powerful, whether that's social power or personal power, they see their biggest challenges not as threats, but as opportunities. And just like, think of that. Think of that. Every challenge, it has a bit of both of those things. Which thing are you going to focus on? Is it an opportunity for you to grow or to accomplish something or overcome a fear? Or is it a threat to your existence in some way? So when the approach system is activated, people see those challenges as opportunities. They see the other people they're interacting with, like the person interviewing them, not as a potential predator who's out to get them, but as a potential ally, someone who they can trust. They feel more optimistic about the future. They feel happier. They have an abundance mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset. And I think maybe most important, they are more likely to act So when people feel powerful, they're more likely to take action, not just on behalf of themselves, for themselves, but for others. So, you know, I've been studying and writing about in the last couple of years is adult bullying and bravery and bystander behavior. And what we find is that the bystanders who are the most likely to intervene and say, that's not okay, are the ones who feel in that moment powerful. So you are also more likely to act on behalf of others. So feeling personally powerful can make you both stronger and more competent and also more generous and trusting and open to others. Oh my gosh, I love that last point so much. It's like such a break line pillar as well. Okay, I want to get into imposter syndrome and you and I have talked about this offline. You write about it extensively in your book and elsewhere as well. And we talk about it within the Breakline community all the time. I want to share with the Breakline team here today what you say about imposter syndrome. You call it the deep and sometimes paralyzing belief that we have been given something we didn't earn and don't deserve and that at some point will be exposed. But then you also went on, and this is the part that I thought was so interesting, and I see this every day with the Breakline community. You said, who fears failure the most? It's people who have achieved something, people who are demonstrably anything but frauds. And then finally you said, I've spent a good part of my own life believing I don't deserve to be here. Why are high-performing people so likely to experience this affliction? First, I think that high-performing people are inevitably focused a bit more on social comparison than others. We're trying to achieve when we have these ambitions. I think it is inevitable that we're gonna compare ourselves to others. Now, why does that lead to imposter syndrome? 
because people are not open about feeling like imposters. They put on a brave face. So we look around and we feel like, okay, fine. Even if you feel like an imposter, you're not one, but I am. It's true for me, but it's not true for you. So we, we don't share it with each other. I think that this is especially, this is problematic for women and men in different ways. It's problematic for women because the early research on imposter syndrome in the early 70s framed it as a problem that's more common among women. Now, the woman who studied it, Pauline Clance, says now, I so wish that I had not done that. And I realize now that the reason I thought it was a women's problem was because women were openly talking about it and men weren't. So basically prescriptive stereotypes about how, you know, women should be vulnerable and, you know, share with each other and men shouldn't led to this misperception that it's a women's problem and not a men's. Now that's a problem for women because it's another thing heaped on this pile of like, oh, you got to get over this and this and this. But also for men thinking, oh, it's not a men's problem. It's really painful for them. They're burdened with this feeling and not feeling that they can openly talk about it. And so not talking about it in a way exacerbates it for everyone. So it makes us feel more alone. And the truth is that 80% of people at least report having the experience of feeling like an imposter. And that's, that is equal across genders and professions. It's not limited to any one segment of society. In the, that chapter, I talk about my friend, Neil Gaiman, who's a writer, a, a very successful writer. It's, it's one of those, Neil is one of these people who, if you're into sort of sci-fi, you absolutely know who Neil Gaiman is. And if you're not, you don't. But trust me when I say he's one of the most prolific and successful authors alive. And he's also one of the only famous men who will openly talk about imposter syndrome. And I think it's so powerful to have him talking about it because he's so demonstrably achieved so many things, yet he still says, every time I embark on a new mission, a new challenge project, I feel it again. And I say, what do we do then? Like, I mean, if Neil Gaiman, if you're still feeling it, what do we do? And he's like, he's like, I just noticed that I feel it every time I try something new. And now I know from experience that it's gonna go away. So he doesn't panic about feeling it. And I often say anxiety isn't the problem. It's anxiety about anxiety that's the problem. So if you feel it when you start something new, like a new job, just go, of course you do. Like say to yourself, of course I feel it. That is totally normal and it's going to go away. And everyone else feels it. So you are not alone. If everyone feels it, that either means we are all imposters, which is unlikely, or maybe it's a bias that's wrong. So uh yeah, sorry, I think I went on a little bit longer than I, than I meant to there, but I do think it starts with social comparison. And then when we achieve something, it brings attention to us and that makes us feel like we're in the spotlight. And then you have this thing that they call the spotlight effect where you feel like, oh my gosh, now everybody's looking at me and they're gonna be judging me more harshly. And it just brings up, it stirs up these feelings of inadequacy. Amy, when you when you started with the social comparison, it reminded me of something that a breakliner who's here today said to me at one point, because I was saying you're you're just so outrageously talented. And hopefully that sounds familiar to a lot of the breakliners here, because I say that a lot. But he said, when you're a unicorn surrounded by other unicorns, everyone starts to look like a donkey. And it was so funny because it's it's partly about 
the comparison, but also about moving the goalposts for ourselves as well. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, I like that. I've never heard that, but it's so isolating and it can actually be a phenomenon that brings us together that mm -hmm. we can kind of joke about and share with each other. You in your book, I mean, you, you, you obviously touched a nerve. Your TED talk has been viewed 60 million times. You know, a million people are following you on LinkedIn and like just all these other platforms. I mean, people just love to be connected with you. And you said in your book, I think it's because I've given them um, a reason to feel less alone. Like they are not alone in these feelings. And there's something so reassuring about knowing that you're standing next to somebody else. I, I think that's true. And I think, you know, for me, I, I mean, I grew up in rural working class Pennsylvania. I mean, really small town, you know, parents had three jobs. And I, I think many of you understand that that is a reality. Like that's true. I know some people go, oh, well, who has three jobs? Trust me, people have three jobs to get by. That's the community I grew up in. Really, you know, incredibly hardworking people who are, who are living paycheck to paycheck. Only a third of my high school class went to college. I was the only person to leave to go out of state. You know, I worked my way through college as a roller skating waitress. We'll be coming back to that later. I feel very much, I really relate to, I don't even know what word to use, the average person. Mm -hmm. I'm the average person. And, and I, I'm proud of that. I am so proud of that. I used to be ashamed. I thought I kind of wanted to hide that I didn't have a fancy pedigree. You know, when I started undergrad, I went to CU Boulder and through grad school at Princeton, which probably gave me the worst imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Not only is everyone, you know, high achieving, they also have like the glossiest hair all the time. They're perfectly groomed. But I started to become proud of where I came from when I ended up at HBS and students from that background came into me saying, I don't belong here. You know, I'm from rural West Virginia or, and I, that was the moment where I thought, <laughs> like, this is why I'm here. I am here for those people. And many people are those people. So I, I don't feel like I need to in any way put on the feeling of feeling like a regular person. I am a regular person. I'm, you know, it's one of my friends, one of my brother's good friends wrote to me the other day. He also had a serious head injury like I did. And he's like, he said, I kind of miss, I kind of miss when you were just like, Josh's little sister who was really average because then I felt like it was easier to reach out to you but I said I, I want you to reach out to me now but that was that was who I was you know I mean it's not that I didn't like who I was but I certainly never in a million years thought I'd end up at Harvard or getting a PhD from Princeton I didn't I thought I was smart but I did not feel special mm -hmm. well those are experiences for other people you know, we can kind of get into that frame of mind. Those are opportunities for other people. No, they are opportunities for us. Right. Amy, your anecdote about Princeton and the glossiest hair, some of the breakliners have heard me tell this story before. I felt so called out as a regular average person from small town Vermont. One time when I was at I was at the eating club that I joined at Princeton and I said, could you pass the salt? 
And they said, um, salt and pepper are passed together. And I was like, not in my house. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> so I think just embracing our own backgrounds as an advantage is just so hugely powerful. So thank you for sharing that story. Wait, sir, can I just say that is where I also learned that at Princeton. And it was another grad student who told me, I, I asked for the salt and they were like, salt and pepper are passed together. Passed together. All right. I'm going to ask one more question, folks, and then we're going to turn it over. So Amy, one of the parts of your book that I loved the most was when you talked about something that you call self nudges. And we're just coming through, we're just in January. And it is this very cyclical time when we make grand promises, our New Year's resolutions, the whole thing. And in this part of your book, you talk about why that type of approach is unlikely to work, but self-nudges, which you define as minimal modifications to one's own body language and mindset that are intended to produce small psychological and behavioral improvements in the moment. They are tiny tweaks with the potential to over time lead to big changes. And you said self nudges are ultimately much more impactful than really grand gestures and promises. I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit more about that. I, I'm not a proponent of the New Year's resolution. Um, and I, 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 but that does not mean that I don't think people can improve. I, I'm also a pathological optimist. I just think that you, the, I think the data show us pretty clearly that, first of all, New Year's resolutions are way too big. They involve lots of little steps in between that people neglect. They just see it as one big goal. It takes a long time to get there. And there are a lot of opportunities for failure along the way. And so say you're going to, um, I don't know, run a 5K or something, and you're going to do that in two months. And you kind of, you start to, to lag a bit in your training, then you're like, well, I, I just give up because you know, now I'm behind and I can never do that. So instead, think of you know, why, not, why not approach these challenges one at a time? So next time you give a talk or something, you're just gonna slow your speech a bit. You're going to open your body language a bit. Just that, that's what you're gonna do because you know what, you'll do that. You'll accomplish that. And then you'll feel that you've accomplished that and it will be easier the next time. That's how change happens. That's how self-improvement happens. Just one small step at a time. Why should you put yourself in a position where you're, you're trying to achieve something you know, enormous and complicated? I'm not even sure where that came from, but yes, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the self-nudge. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Eric Gonzalez has a question. He says, hi, Amy. Can you speak to how we can honor someone else's space while also maintaining or expanding our own space? Oh, sure. I, I didn't make this clear, but the really expansive postures and, and behaviors that I'm talking about are things that I recommend people do in private before they go into the stressful interaction. Right. So, you know, you find some uh, private space, I say, like in a bathroom stall or a stairwell or in your house right now, it's all virtual. So you can do it before you come online. Then you can be as expansive as you want to be and look ridiculous. And it's not going to offend anybody. When you're interacting, you want your body language to be both open, but not domineering 
and welcoming. So you want to be clearly indicating that you want to be there. You know, you want to be sending trust and love through your gestures in addition to strength. So I think that that's really important for people to, because I've seen, I've seen people make the mistake of standing in these really alpha postures during talks and it does not go over well. Really like CEOs, when they're giving an apology or something, they're like the situations where you're like, no, 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 wrong time to do this. So that's one thing I want to say. But the other is that it is important to read people to get a sense of how comfortable they are, how much space do they need. And we know that when for the most part, people mirror each other in their body language. So, you know, Bethany's nodding and smiling and I'm nodding and smiling and that's self-reinforcing. If there were a big power differential, then what could happen, maybe not with Bethany, but is that the powerful person tends to get even more expansive and the powerless person becomes, shrinks more. And we call that complementarity. And that's a very primitive response because the powerless person feels like I can't offend this person. I might get punished. I don't want to be picked off by a predator. And the powerful person is feeling the effects of knowing they have power over somebody. So remember in those situations, whether you're the powerful or powerless person, try to avoid that complementarity pattern. Try to tone it down if you're powerful and try not to shrink if you're feeling powerless. Mm-hmm. That is such great advice. And it kind of dovetails with a question that Diane Chan had. She said, thanks so much for sharing your story with us, Amy. And she said, it seems like bullies target certain types of people. Do you have any thoughts on expansive body language that helps victims feel more like victors? Do we invite targeting because we adopt these postures or no? The, the, so there are like two things that I've learned about, it's funny because when people talk about bullying, they want to focus on the bullies and the targets because those are like the main characters in the movie. But I really think that what we should be focusing on are the extras milling around in the background, the bystanders. But let me just start with bullies. You know, who are the bullies? Everybody wants to know who are the bullies? Are they the people who were bullied? Are they the powerful people? people who were bullied are also like adults who are bullied online are more likely to stand up for other people who are bullied online. So that whole belief, that myth about bullied people becoming bullies, I I do think is a myth because it can go either way. What I do find that's common across bullies is that if you ask them the kind of Einstein question, is the world or is the universe fundamentally friendly or hostile, they're going to say hostile. That's the commonality, whether they're powerful or powerless, whether they were bullied as a kid or not, they think the world's hostile. Targets do not have much in common. They tend to be higher achievers and they tend to be people who are principled at work and demonstrate those principles and are respected for it. And so if you have a bully in the organization, that's threatening to them, not just from a competence perspective, but also from a virtual virtuosity, is that right? Perspective. And so, so they feel extra threatened by really decent people. You do see some of that, but if the timing is unfortunately right and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and maybe you're a tall poppy, there's a good chance. 
that you could become a target. But no, I don't, they certainly do not seem to be people who are more passive. When I think about the breakline community, you talked about folks who are principled, respected, high achievers. That's this group. How do we step up when we see bullying start to occur? What would you like to see from us as upstanders? Well, I mean, first recognize that social, I call it social bravery is harder in many ways than physical bravery because social bravery is not rewarded right away. It may never be rewarded. You're doing it because it's the right thing, not because you're getting any glory out of it. And that's tough. So first recognize it is challenging to do this. If you're in a leadership position, your role is to step in and draw a very clear line. But let's just take online bullying, where you see somebody that you respect starting to get bullied, not just by sort of anonymous trolls, but by people in their professional community. Here's just one small thing you can do. First of all, don't signal boost the bully. Do not retweet that person. Don't like that tweet. Add to the threat. So part of the problem on social media with bullying is that people are afraid to stand up. And so it looks as if negativity is the norm. It's not, it it is the normative behavior, but it's not the normative psychological response. Most people are sitting there doing nothing. So get in there and change the norm to something positive. So what I do is if I see somebody getting piled on by a mob, I don't address the people piling on. I, I say something about that person and what they've done that really helped me. And so when that happens, I'll jump in and go, the article you wrote last week really helped me. And for this reason, very specifically. And then people start adding to that. So you want to shift the norm from negativity to positivity. You don't even have to engage the people who are being negative. That's one thing. But also be aware of all the cognitive biases that lead you to believe something without really checking it. I mean, I know it's the era of fake news, but even smart people who are having intellectual discussions use these kind of tactics to pull people in because they think you're not going to read beyond what I just said. Do your research before you believe that story about the person who's being targeted. All right, Amy. Oh my God. I mean, just such a treat to spend the time with you. Absolutely loved it. I'm going to turn it over to you. I know you wanted the final few moments. So I just thought I've never done this, but I'm in my house and I've got a nice wood floor. By the way, I've been skiing for the last three months and not roller skating. So I'm not at my roller skating best, but I'm going to leave you with my favorite roller skating trick if this works. All right. So I got to turn the camera around. So hold on. All right. So I'm already ready. And so let me just get this set up. Give me a moment. Stop it right now. I am fangirling. I am not afraid for you all to see it. I hope this is being recorded, Bethany. This is being recorded. We don't necessarily have to share it, but it's being recorded. Why would you not share it? I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right, hold on. Let's see. Let's see if this works. Okay, that's perfect. All right, you guys ready? Amy, we freaking love you so much. Are you ready? Ready. I'm a little nervous. All right, here we go. You can do it. Okay, it's going to take me a second. I'm going to go around the corner. Yes! That was amazing. That was awesome. Everybody come on mute and tell me. How did you do that? Amazing. It was great.
Brilliant. I'm buying a pair of rollerblades right now. Amy, all the love to you. Thank you so much. You too. This was great. Thank you for a great conversation. Just wow. Just wow. I mean, I'm going to be power posing. I'm going to be thinking about my presence. And I only have one regret in this whole experience. This is my one regret, is that the arena is a audio platform and not a visual. Because as our listeners, you just missed out on the most epic part of this entire it was so epic. Sophia, you got to tell them what just happened. Tell them. I, I have to give Amy you guys just did. an absolute play-by-play. Here's what happened. Amy Cuddy did that entire interview while she was wearing her turquoise roller skates. And then at the end of it, she says, I want to show you guys one of my favorite roller skating moves. So Amy Cuddy puts her computer on the floor and then it's, we're facing like her kitchen island. She readjusts it. She zips around her kitchen island on her roller skates and then gets down in like a pistol squat, has one leg out and just glides by like a goddess. It was unreal. Everyone was losing their minds. Folks, that literally just happened. And <laughs> it is one of those things in life where, where you witness something you just ne- like, never this forget. really... And, and what was crazy about it was like the lead up, she slowly brought the roller skate into vision. You're like, wait a minute. And she'd been this, strapped in this whole time. This is about to go down. Like, mm-hmm. this is going down right now. I was starting to get a little bit nervous. We lost vision of her as she was getting around the island. <laughs> and then she just came in hot. It was unreal. You guys have to follow her on Instagram to catch some of her skating videos. Check check our girl out because she is going to keep you, literally, she's going to keep you on your toes. What I will tell you is if for no other reason, if that has not piqued your interest, I, I don't know what will. Man. I, I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> You have to stay tuned to what's going down in the Freight Climb Arena because every week it is something new, it's something fun, it's something exciting. It is so fresh. You, it's fresh, man. And if you haven't already done so, we need you to do one of three things. Please like, subscribe, follow us on your favorite streaming platform. If you want to learn more about Breakline, you can follow us at breakline.org. And folks, I'm telling you, this ride is only getting funner by the week. So don't mm-hmm. miss out. We love the fact that you've been tuning in and we've got some more great stuff in store for you. So once again, this is Kenny Vaughn signing out of Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin. we will see you guys next Tuesday.